And they said, oh, Brad, you don't have a drug problem. You have a Brad problem. Drugs are your solution. And I was like, they're not my solution. Drugs have caused me problems. And they're like, no, that is your solution. Your problem is you. Like you run from everything. You don't have any stressful thing. You have no coping mechanisms. You just go to that. The tipping point for me, and I'm sure for you and, and so many that have struggled with the same thing is it got to the place where my solution became a bigger problem than the problems I was even dealing with. It took me a long time to grasp that, but I'm, I'm grateful today to realize that like I still am my problem, but I'm also can be my solution too. <laughs> You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 512 with guest Brad Jensen. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here and so grateful for your time. Brad Jensen is here. Brad is actually a former client of mine who has such a roller coaster of a life story and ha- completely turned his life around. Super amazing redemption story, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Also, for those of you who – basically what I decided is that I'm going to pause on the themes for a while and – if you have someone that you would love to hear as a guest on our show, maybe you heard them on another show and you were like, Andrea would be great at interviewing that person. I want to hear more of them. Or if you just follow an expert on social media and you think they would be a great fit for the show, please, please, please head over to the survey that I'm doing right now. It's at andreaowen.com slash survey. The link is in the show description. And we're also doing a drawing. If you do the survey before the middle of March – the date will be on there. Um, I'm giving away, we already did one round of giveaways, um, some Make Some Noise tote bags, a signed copy of one of my books. And just your feedback is invaluable about the show because I want the show to be for you and to give you the best value, bring you the best guests that I possibly can. So all that being said, also, if you are interested in the Daring Way program, which is, I mean, some of the key takeaways are getting crystal clear on what your values are, what trust looks like to you and how to build it in your relationships, the myths and paradoxes of vulnerability and how to work past those in your life so you can have better connections, so you can have more courage, you can have more shame resilience. That's really what the entire program is about. You might've heard me talk about how I I host a retreat and I'm gonna do that later this year. However, also I'm gonna be rolling out an online group format of this. So you don't have to leave your home. Classes are going to be in the evenings at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 Eastern on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So head over to andreaowen.com slash group. We finally have a page just for that, andreaowen.com slash group. And if you're listening to this before registration opens, you can just sign up to be early, early notified. There is special pricing for people who get in very first and also who are on that list. So you want to make sure that you're on that list. I ca- I have to cap it at 14 people, not my rules 
it's it's Brene Brown's rules, actually. So there is very limited space. So andreaowen.com slash group. And I am going to bring you my guest today. So for those who are not familiar with Brad, let me tell you a little bit about him. Brad Jensen's passion for the fitness industry began when he was 14 years old. The minute he picked up his first fitness and nutrition magazine, he knew that that was what he was born to do. He is NASM and a certified and the owner of Key Nutrition and has gone on to acquire numerous certifications, including NCI, Oracle Applied Science, and the WellFit Mentorship. This passion has lifted him from his darkest time and helped him overcome a decade of addiction to drugs and alcohol, which resulted in his sobriety. And his sobriety date is November 20th of 2012. So without further ado, here is Brad. Brad, you're here. Thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you. It's so good to see you. You know, it's not often that I have guys on my podcast. Oh, you should feel I'm very in touch with my feminine side, so it should work okay. I know you are. No, I wanted to sort of mix it up and and have people of different walks of life talking, especially about about this theme. And as I was just mentioning to you, I want to kind of keep it general because a smaller population that listen to the show have, you know, would identify as an addict or alcoholic or someone like quote unquote in recovery. But Okay, so maybe you can answer this and kind of tell us like the three minute version of your story of like, you know, when you found yourself getting your mugshot taken. And um, I'm also curious, and if you forget the second part of the question, I'll I'll circle back and ask you, like, what was the root cause of your addiction? Because it's usually like never about like, I just really liked drugs. Like, I just really liked booze. Like, we're doing it for another reason. So kind of kind of walk us through like when you found yourself, because you have like a true rock bottom story. Am I right? Yeah. Like I found the basement of rock bottom. You did. Okay. The mugshot first. Is that what you said? Yeah, because that's that's really all I know is that like you got arrested, and then I don't even remember if you turned your life around. Like, was that it, or did it keep going after that? Well, that was the seventeenth time I had been arrested. You're um, kidding me! I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's back when they used to a arrest you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I talked to people who are still out there, kind of running a gun or trying to clean up their life now, obviously, and. They're like, oh, no, you have to do something really bad for them to arrest you now. And back in 2004 to 2012, it was like they just kept arresting me. And and most of the times I was booked and released. But that the um, the mug shot that I'll, I'll commonly post on on social media platforms was that last time was um, the 17th time was the kicker for me. <laughs> so, yeah, that that last time was the time I turned my life around. And so, you know, I was a overweight kind of kid growing up chubby. And like I always tell people, if I could go back and just give that kid a hug, mm-hmm. like, and just like, you're not. See, I hung around with kids that had rib cages. So we called that. I, we thought they were like ripped and they were just skinny. Right. They okay. Were just, and so I was kind of the chubbier one of the group, but I look back and I remember, and and don't get me wrong, like I I liked I liked some food, you know, and I was hadn't had a growth spurt yet. But again, like I look back and I just think, man, you were just like you just hadn't hit that growth spurt, bud. You didn't need to yeah. just to be so mortified. And so I was kind of teased by my friends. No, I wasn't bullied in the sense of like, you know, what kids go through maybe nowadays, but I was definitely, you know, the shit end of the joke with all my yeah, friends yeah. about mm-hmm. being fat. I was just anxious. And this is 19, you know, 96, 
12 year old kid, I didn't know how to articulate to my, to my folks that I was anxious. Like Uh I didn't know what that meant. In fact, they sent something was wrong. And so the doctor just put me on Ritalin. Like, wow, I just can't focus, which just made my anxiety 10 times worse. And so the minute I found, um, some Jack Daniels whiskey and, and my buddy, he snuck it from his mom. And I remember I drank it and I thought, why would adults do this? That was the worst thing I've ever tried. And about 20 minutes later, I was like, okay, I get why they do it. This is okay. So was this like high school? No, I was like 12. Oh my gosh. Okay. Middle school. And so just, you know, I used to escape this petrifying anxiety that was being like, just being me was just, I mean, I was, I felt like I was on the outside looking in at life all the time. I was terrified. I was terrified. I was terrified of everything. Just petrifying anxiety. I drank originally to fit in and to be cool because all all my friends were doing it. And but the minute I tried it, I thought, oh, I don't feel anxious when I do this. It was just, it was amazing. Where did, and where did you grow up? I grew up here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. So currently live, that's what so. I thought. And you have a lot of siblings, big family. Yeah, I'm the youngest of five. Yeah. The youngest of five. Okay. Yeah. And so, but not and maybe I'm stereotyping, but because we lived in Utah for three years and a a lot of the families there are a little more conservative when it comes to like having alcohol in the house. And so that was different for your family. Oh no. Yeah. I know. I grew up Mormon um, okay. from the Mormon church. And it still didn't stop you. <laughs> no, 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 did not go figure. And you know what? My parents were actually pretty cool. You know, they weren't, they didn't, they didn't push religion down my throat, but definitely was, was taboo to drink. I never saw it in my parents' home. They didn't do that, you know, and they tried to raise me the best they could. And what's interesting is I always say, you know, you know, from that time at 12, you know, and then, you know, until I got sober at 28. And obviously it wasn't just like full-blown gnarly addiction for that long, but I didn't use drugs because I was sexually molested, which is a common story or had this severe trauma. Of course, there's dysfunction you see in families, but I use simply because I was so anxious and anxiety is still the thing I battled throughout my whole sobriety. And I had no coping mechanisms as a little kid. And again, they put me on riddle and thinking that would help. Well, it's a stimulant. So it just makes everything worse. But I didn't know that. They're just telling me to keep taking my medication. And it just felt like this downward spiral. And so as bad as my addiction got, it wasn't because my parents did anything or I didn't have a dad in the house or sure. My dad worked a lot and he wasn't around, but like I was raised, my parents did the best they could. Yeah. And so I always, I would say I became a drug addict despite, despite like, you know, that I was raised really well. I had a similar experience. And, you know, I, now that I have a 13 and 15 year old and my daughter's in seventh grade and my son's obviously been through it, what I forgot about when it comes to middle school, that's why when you said 12, I was like, oh my gosh, is that everything is embarrassing. Like just existing is so embarrassing and just like this crippling, like everyone's staring at me when literally no one is staring at you. (laughs) Yes. It's called the, there's like a term for it. It's called the invisible audience that is so common in middle schoolers where they think everyone is watching and staring at them and there's not. So I can see how that is such a, a dangerous, I don't know if I have a better word for it, just susceptible to finding coping mechanisms that just give you some peace like in your head. Oh my gosh. Okay. So it was just kind of a downward spiral from there. You know, by the time I hit high school, I realized I found fitness and I'll sum this up really quick, but I remember picking up a magazine in a Barnes and Noble uh, book. That's back when people used to go to bookstores. You know, my mom Mm -hmm. was in there buying a book. I was in the magazine section. I'm still this kind of overweight 14, probably 14 and a half year old kid. 
and I see this muscle and fitness magazine. I see this big Jack dude on it. And I was like, I want to look like him. I want, I was just enthralled. I went right to it. I picked the magazine up and I just started reading. I had never I'd never been so passionate about anything in my whole entire life. I was uh-huh. like, oh my gosh, you know, it made no sense to me. I'd never lifted a weight or whatever. I remember I tore out a page in there that was, uh, there was this sample diet. Now looking back, it was probably for like a bikini girl competitor, <laughs> not a young man. And I remember I was eating like four egg whites in the morning with a half a grapefruit. That was my whole breakfast, which is like a hundred calories just for those counting at home. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. Not enough. <laughs> and I started to lose weight. And during that time too, I hit a growth spurt. So what happened was, is I actually then all of a sudden, by the time I hit a sophomore in high school, I was being teased by my buddies for being too skinny. They would call me the anorexic kid. And I was like, I can't win with these sons of bitches. So wow. I kept telling my mom I wanted a gym pass. She said, I'm not going to get you one until you can get one once you're 16. I'm not going to drive you there every day. The minute I turned 16, that's the first thing I did. Drove there and I just fell in love with lifting weights. And during that time too, I found out how bad alcohol was for you um, mm-hmm. when it came to building muscle or your physique. And so I just quit drinking cold turkey. Wouldn't do it. I was so obsessed with the gym. And uh, I made a huge transformation in a matter of a year. By the time I was a 17-year-old kid, I mean, I was I was a jacked kid. I was walking around high school, uh, the most, you know, the popular girl in school who didn't know I know, didn't even know I existed my sophomore year, thought mm-hmm. I was hot. And it was like, it it started at that point in graining a battle that I've had to continue to work on that like, wow, if you're buff, that means good. That yeah. means you get attention. That means validation. And again, like something I've really had to, and probably just in the last three years have really started to kind of do a 180 on what that looks like. But I wanted to keep drinking, like, but I wouldn't do it. See, because I still had the anxiety. Sure, it was better because now I was popular. Now I had a bunch of muscle and, you know, the hot girl thought it was cool. But I still was like, man, just kind of this pit in my stomach each day. I couldn't figure it out. And so I was uh, a junior in high school and we went to a party and I'll never forget it. Uh, You know, those moments in your life where you just, I don't remember shit about high school. I remember this moment though. I walked in the split level entry house. It was a party where there was like a a beer keg and there was these jungle juice, red solo cups Mm -hmm. everywhere. I remember the cabinet color. I was sitting in this kitchen and my buddy had, had gave me before we went in, he said, Hey, I've got these pain pills. Do you want to try some? And this is how naive I still was. I was like, Oh, I'm not in any pain. And he's like, no, no. And he, had, he had to say one phrase for me to catch on. He said, all the bodybuilders are doing it. You'll love it. Like they're, that's what they do. They do it instead of drink. It makes you feel like you're drunk, but you don't have a hangover. He said, so you'll still be able to go lift tomorrow morning. I was like, no way. I was like, let me try him. And I remember when they hit me in that kitchen, I remember I felt like I had arrived. That was the, the moment I'd been looking for. I loved everything about it. I loved how I felt. It was probably the most spiritual experience I'd had to that point in my life. I felt complete. I was like, this is amazing. And so that started, um, that started the path for me and it got, it got pretty ugly, pretty quick. Um, you know, by the time I was a a senior in high school, I was taking trips down to Tijuana, Mexico and going to the pharmacias and loading Mm -hmm. my door panels up on my car with narcotics. And then, you know, putting them back on driving through and then coming back and was selling these to high school kids. And so I was joked. That's when my entrepreneurial, you know, began was, I, I started keeping a ledger book. Like I had no idea the amount of federal felonies I was committing by like Mm. crossing country lines with trucks. Right. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of idiot savant. And so, you know, and, and the thing happened during that time too, was I, I didn't run out because I had such a plethora of supply. I'd gone down there three or four times and I didn't run out. 
And so by the time I was, uh, you know, graduating high school, I realized, okay, I can't keep doing this. I got to clean up my life. I got certified as a personal trainer while I was still in high school, got a job at a gym, was super pumped about that. Somebody I knew had gone down to do the same thing and got stuck in a Mexican prison. So I remember saying, I'm too pretty to go to prison. We're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's easy enough. Okay. We're just going to finish. I'm going to be done. I'd heard about withdrawals, but you got to remember the kids I was selling them to weren't, you know, you know, bottom barrel junkies pounding on my door. They were guys that wanted to do them on the weekend and have fun. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I knew that withdrawals were a thing, but I thought it just kind of feel like a minor little cold. And for the listeners out there, it's just, it's a, I say it's like the worst flu you've ever had times 10, because there's this petrifying panic, like almost anxiety, like panic attack like almost all the time. I stopped him and, and the second day I was so sick and I didn't I didn't know what hit me. I had been I had been using them daily for about 8 months at that point and I hit these things called withdrawals and it was awful and I made one phone call. Were you call living at home at the time? You know what? I wasn't. I was actually living in I had moved out uh into an apartment with a buddy. Okay. And so, so like your mom wasn't around worrying about yeah. you. Okay. No. So she had no clue. she knew I party but she had no idea the extent and I, I yeah. made one phone call guy calls me over next thing you know his brother shows up and his brother has this stuff called heroin and i remember thinking in my head that was a line in the stand i drawn like that was gross like that mm -hmm. was for junkies that mm -hmm. no i no not me and instant i just but said well make me feel better yeah. yeah and he said i said well make me feel better and he said instantly so i proceeded to um to use heroin as an 18 year old kid and, and shot it up and Remember afterwards, the the guy looked at me and he he said, "Hey kid, I'm sorry. Your life will never be the same." Oh, he knew where you were headed. No, no, I'm not going to keep doing this. I'm like, like I had no plan, but in my head, I'm like, oh, I just need to feel better today. But somehow tomorrow, I was going to face these horrible withdrawals, mm -hmm. and that continued. And I kept using for the next uh, using heroin daily for the next six to eight months, and and ended up in my first treatment center. Uh, shortly after that. And I remember I called my mom and I said, Hey, I need some help. She said about what? And I said, I'm addicted to heroin. And she dropped the phone. That's she how much no shock idea. she was in. I said, hello, mm -hmm. hello. She came back and she said, you're kidding. I'm like, no. And she just started sobbing and she was like, oh, so, you know, being great parents, they find me the nicest treatment center and they put me in there. And that's when I started going to rehab and I ended up going to six more treatment centers between 2005 and 2012. And again, also 17 bookings in the county jail. I was very busy during that time. Well, okay. I have a couple of questions and I wanted to point to a couple of things that you said for people listening who have no idea what it's like to have the mind of an, of an addict. And you said, you know, you're sitting in that at that party in that house and you took the pill and then 20 minutes later, like you're instantly sort of like kind of transported. I think everyone has, or most people have experienced like that feeling of like, you know, being high or a little buzzed. And, and I think for many people's brains, they either don't like it or they like it, but it doesn't sort of like transport them and take them away from a place where that they hate. And for you, it was, you know, that anxious place and the way I describe it is I, I had like this like low level anxiety, but also for me, it was just anything emotional. Like I wanted to run away from it. Like I always say, like, I just wanted to run away from my life because everything about it was too tender. Like it just don't poke me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly off the handle drinking. Yes. And especially like benzos took that away from me instantly. And it's just... I think that's the part that's hard to explain to people that don't think like us. 
Yes. That point where it yeah. just sort of, I don't know how what else to say except that it in an instant it solves all your problems. It does. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, I can relate with that so much. I remember going that first treatment center. I remember him saying something to me that took me a solid seven, eight years to actually comprehend. And they said, oh, Brad, you don't have a drug problem. You have a Brad problem. Drugs are your solution. And I was like, they're not my solution. Drugs have caused me problems. And they're like, no. That is your solution. Your problem is you. Like you run from everything. You don't have any stressful thing. You have no coping mechanisms. You just go to that. And it took me years before I realized, like, oh, see, the drugs worked, or I wouldn't have kept doing them because they were destroying my life. The drugs and alcohol were ruining me, but they worked in the moment. And the the tipping point for me, and I'm sure for you and, and so many that have struggled with the same thing, is it got to the place where my solution became a bigger problem than the problems I was even dealing with. Exactly. And it's this kind of point of no return of like, I, <laughs> I was I feel just like thinking I'm, the same thing. It's the point of no return that we're constantly trying to return to. Yeah, exactly. It took me a long time to grasp that, but I'm, I'm grateful today to realize that like I still am my problem, but I'm also can be my solution too. Are you looking for an easy way to eat well and save money? This economy, right? Cut back on expensive takeout and delivery and get started with HelloFresh. You'll love how fast it is, how easy and affordable, and you whip up a restaurant-quality meal right in your own kitchen. One of my favorite things about HelloFresh is that you can customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides or even adding protein to a veggie dish. And now you can even upgrade for organic chicken or organic ground beef. I love it when it's a HelloFresh night. I don't have to thaw anything out. I don't have to feel bad for not making a nutritious meal for my family. It's truly my favorite dinner nights. I mean, they're America's number one meal kit, so you can't go wrong. And P.S., you've probably heard me talk about Green Chef here on the podcast, and now they're owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between Green Chef and HelloFresh. And now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. So go to hellofresh.com slash noise65 and use code noise65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's a great deal. Hellofresh.com slash noise65 and the code is noise65 for 65% off plus free shipping. And to be fair, like I don't know a single person and I talk to a lot of really smart experts that come on my show who were raised in a family where they were like, okay, let's talk about coping mechanisms. Like here are some, here are some healthy ways to cope. And right. so how did you, and continue to, but I, I'm interested in like, maybe even if you can, if you can describe it, like what the journey was like, like as you started to realize that you had a Brad problem and the, what are some alternative solutions? Like especially like in the beginning, did you try other solutions that didn't work? Like, did you throw yourself even more into fitness? Did you, was it relationships? What what other things that you tried to use to cope? A hundred percent. You know, I'll say this, you know, that seven, that you really decade long, but those seven years from when I first entered treatment until, I mean, it was just horrible. I ended up homeless a couple of times. I I got married and don't remember it. Like it was six overdoses had to be revived. Like, thank God for Narcan. Like there was this ugliness. And I remember, and, and I'll share this really briefly, but the turning point for me in November of 2012, my, my mother called me and informed me that my grandpa had passed away. 
Mm-hmm. And she said, I'd like you to be at the funeral. Keep in mind at this point, my parents have put in these things called boundaries, which is the best thing they could have done for me. They loved me enough to say, you're not allowed around here. If you come around, we'll call the cops. You know, it was, I was not safe or trustworthy to be around. Okay. And so I hadn't heard from them in a while. And, um, I was living at this motel and she came, um, she said, I want you to be there. And I said, okay. And she said, Brad, just do whatever you got to do to be right. And I knew what that meant. What that meant was don't be drooling all of yourself so high and don't be so sick withdrawing that you're a complete mess. Mm -hmm. But of course the morning came November 19th of 2012. And I, and I, and I ran out of everything, you know, when you're homeless and living in really, you know, shady places, like it just doesn't work out well. Yeah. So my mother picked me up and I remember I was withdrawing, but I thought, it was important enough for me to show up for my grandpa's funeral. I was like, just go, just go. And then when you get back, you can figure this out. And by the time uh, she picked me up, the withdrawals had kicked in really hard and I was shaking and shivering and vomiting in her car. And she said, what do we need to do? And and obviously I told her we need to go to the truck dealers. Like, if you want me to be okay, this is, I don't know what else to do. This is the only way I can, can get through this. And so I made my good little religious mother backtrack about 40 minutes, take me to this shady place. And by this point, we're going to be late for my grandpa's funeral. It's way up in, um, uh, way up the highway in Northern Utah. And she's so upset with me. She says, get in the back seat and do whatever you have to do. And to save some graphic detail, um, IV drug use is just very ugly. There's mm-hmm. needles and spoons and blood. And it's just, so my mom knew I'd use heroin, but she'd never watched me do heroin for yeah. obvious reasons. So I hopped in her back seat and I proceeded to, to do the whole process, which again, I'll leave out some of the uh, graphic details, but it was an ugly scene. And she's looking back at me and she's looking in the rearview mirror. And I don't know how we didn't crash because I'm, I'm almost positive she didn't look at the road once. She watches me do this. I remember um, I keep looking at her and looking back and looking up. I use, and and the crazy part about it is it just actually made me feel normal, not even high. Mm -hmm. But you see, normally it could like numb me enough. And I remember I looked up after I did it. And of course I instantly felt better. She's just got tears streaming down her face. And it was just heartbreak, heartbreak. Like it was the, just epitome of a mother's heartbreaking. And I just said, mom, I'm sorry. And she didn't say a word. She didn't say a word the whole rest of the drive. She didn't say anything. And I remember in that moment, like the drugs didn't work. They worked enough to get me not sick. But I thought you have two choices. You can either kill yourself, which sounded like a better option, or you can finally like do this and get sober. Because I had tried so many times. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a, an option to go on another day like this. And I remember that thought came to me. I was like, you're your problem. But if I'm my problem, maybe I can be my solution too. Like I was thinking about killing myself, but that night I didn't. And that's when I got arrested. Um, I got arrested uh, later that evening after getting dropped off my grandfather's funeral. Cop took me to jail because I had warrants. I was in a stolen vehicle, like the whole works. When I got out, what I had done before was I'd gone to jail enough times. I'd, I'd done six months or four months or I got out and like either I'd call the drug friends or if I didn't call the drug friends then. I would end up going, well, I need to get back some weight on me because I'm a fitness dude and I don't look like one. So I'd prioritize the gym first or tanning. I'm being serious, like the, or shopping to make sure I had new clothes. And this time I got out and I went left instead of right, so to speak. And I, and so I went to a recovery meeting and because my parents wouldn't allow me to stay there. And I was humble enough to ask somebody, Hey, I have nowhere to live. Can I stay on your couch? And this guy was like, shit. And by the grace of God, he let me. 
And so I did something different this time. I spent the next 30 days waiting tables, taking the bus, things I would never humble myself to do. I got really enmeshed in a recovery community because I had no friends. I had to create all new friends. And I'm really grateful for that. And then after finally getting a little bit of bearings underneath me, then I went back to the gym. Then I started prioritizing some of these other things. And so, yes, sorry, that was a really long-winded story to say, like I had tried seemingly good things to do once I like got sober during those years, like get back into your physical fitness, which I am a huge proponent of, Right, huge proponent. Obviously it's what I do for a living, mm-hmm. but I had to get like the deep emotional, mental and spiritual work going first. I, it's fascinating to me. Maybe it's like a sick fascination, but it's heartbreaking on, on one end because there are so many people who might experience what you experience, like using in front of your mother and like watching just how incredibly heartbroken she is. And they'll still continue to use and the, and you know, they don't make it, you know, these are the people that do eventually lose their life. But then there are some people where, because they, they always say like, you can't go into recovery for someone else. Like you just can't. And there's also the conversation around that. A lot of people that aren't in recovery don't understand where They'll say like, well, if you can't do it for yourself, can you do it for someone else? It's like, no. And it also doesn't say anything about how you feel about your mother. You know, and people say like, oh, you know, you love drugs more than you love your mother. And it's like, yes, but no, it's so hard to explain. Like when you're not in your right mind, we're just, we're not making good decisions. And, and I, I had a similar moment, not quite as egregious where I had, I had about four months and I got triggered. I got into a fight. With, I got into an argument with my husband. It's serious abandonment issues over here. And I'm like, he's going to leave me. Like, this is it. I'm going to be a single mom. And like, should I look for apartments? I had gone down, gone down the spiral. I started drinking and my, and I, and I was drinking from the bottle at that point, you know, just like not even, why, why am I going to put it in a glass? And my kids were little enough. Um, they were two and four at that point, just turned two and four. And my son was jumping on the bed and I'm sitting in the hallway and there was like a, like an armoire type of thing. And I had put the the bottle in the cabinet just in case like he, my husband had come home. And so he wouldn't see me and I'm drinking it from the bottle, the wine from the bottle the bottle was almost gone. And I had drank plenty before that. And my son stopped jumping on the bed and he says, mommy, what are you doing? Probably because it looked funny. You know, that like, drinking from a, an actual wine bottle. And I remember that moment of just eye contact with him, this like four-year-old little boy and like a, a moment of clarity. I don't know like mm, what else to yeah. call it. And I wasn't doing it for him. I wasn't, but it's just like that, that, that shame, that feeling of shame that you are disappointing someone that you love and care about and you care about how they feel about you. It's like, I I don't know if that is kind of like some kind of divine experience that happens in that moment where the universe is like, here you go. Yes, <laughs> This is the thing that you need to do. The part that breaks my heart is that not everybody gets those moments that they'll continue yes. to use or drink and they'll end up losing their life or losing custody of their children or losing, you know, their entire career. Like that's the part that I have a hard time that makes me emotional and I have a hard time contending with. But anyway, all that to say it's just it's fascinating to me like what were the moments because most people in recovery they might have more than one, but they'll remember because 
I feel like for many of us, it's a moment of shame. It's a moment of like true shame where we are like, I like where we're meeting our maker or something. I don't know. What do you, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are as I say all that. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot, like there's, there's a saying in recovery, but, but I've learned that this this applies to anybody going through any tough situation this this gift of desperation was what that like moment yeah. of clarity we're talking was this this gift to be desperate enough to do something different and i've seen this with with clients over the last you know 15 years um they get in enough pain that this death this moment happens for one of my clients who end up losing 130 pounds and and 10 years later or nine years later he's still um is maintaining like a hundred of that off. Like that's uh-huh. a really good percentage. And it was that he got on an airplane and he realized he had to buy two seats. He wasn't, he didn't fit. And he thought mm-hmm. the only way I'm gonna be able to fly on this and he couldn't afford first class was to fly first class or to start buying two seats, which he couldn't afford either Yeah, because he was hanging over on this other man. And the guy looked at him and said, you should really try to lose some weight. And he said, for whatever reason, that was the moment for me of this clarity and this to do something different, to get a different result. And it's interesting as we kind of talk about like, you know, I always talk about pain is a great motivating factor. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even throughout my sobriety, a common theme has been getting in enough pain to then make a decision to try to do something different. And it's almost like I would joke like, I'll get enough pain. I'm talking more mentally, emotionally, spiritually type things within business. Like, oh, I should change that, but I'm not going to because change sucks. And I think some of the evolution that I've seen is because pain will only get you so far. At some point, then the pain subsides you get kind of stagnant and you rest on your laurels. And next thing you know, like you're back in the same spot. And I would do the cycle over. And some of the growth I've had in the last couple of years was using this like strive for excellence as my motivating factor, opposed to just trying to motivate away from pain Uh long enough that I'm like, oh, I can like slack a little. And I see this so much in my career um, when I was doing a lot more nutrition and fitness coaching was they would get to a place where the 30 pounds is off. They don't, they don't dislike what they see in the mirror as much. They probably have another 30 to go, but they get kind of stagnant and then they slowly start going backwards. And so, and for me, part of that too was coming up with some different coping mechanisms to like not allow myself to get in so much pain. Oh, in the first place, you mean? Yeah. Like when these situations would happen, I, I realized a common theme for me was like, and, and listen, recovery meetings, uh, you've worked with me as a client before back in the day and like we're, we're a huge vocal part and I'm so grateful for that. Uh-huh. But there's been some evolution lately where I don't go to as many meetings anymore and not because I don't think they're they're worthwhile or great. Um, I've gotten really busy in my life with being a dad and these beautiful things. But number two, I would go because I'd be like, ah, I'm still in some pain. I got to go make this go away. And today what I've realized is all of these small little coping mechanisms that I do on a daily basis to avoid even getting into that much pain in the first place uh-huh. have allowed me to stay on like this more even spiritual plane. So I talk about this being like a four-legged chair of health. Like people would come to me for their physical health, but I was talking about this, this stool analogy of like, but we got to work on your emotional, mental, and spiritual health. And uh-huh. so if not, you're balancing on this, this stool that is always wobbling because either you're really good mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but your physical health is shit. And then, or, you know, your physical health is really good. But like you're really spiritually disconnected from anything. So then you're disconnected from your significant other and and whatever else. And so it's finding whatever 
works for each individual and it's their path to pave within each leg of that stool. That's the maintenance part. And that was my next question for you is like, what are you, like if you get triggered now in your life, which we all do, um, what are, what are the things that you lean on, on this, you know, I like that, that metaphor of the four-legged stool that help you not go down that path of, of terrible coping mechanisms. A big one this year for me, it's been suggested to meditate to me for a long time. And uh, I, the story I told myself was I have ADD, I can't meditate. Uh-huh. So it turns out that story is actually bullshit because while it, it was incredibly challenging at first to get into any kind of deep meditative state, um, last year, uh, December of 2021, I made a commitment uh, to a friend that I really value that I was going to adamantly try like to the best of my ability consistently daily, even if it's two minutes or if it's 20 minutes meditating this whole last year of 2022. That alone, I believe, has fundamentally changed who I am. You made a commitment to do it every day. Yeah, and I think I think I logged like three hundred, and I mean, it was there was probably only two weeks that I didn't meditate because what I gave to me was the gift of like just progress, right? Yeah. If that meant sixty seconds in my car, I tried to do it more formal, but I I go kind of addict on things. Like if I'm like, yeah. Okay. I say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. I did the same thing with my bodybuilding show preps, man. Like whether it was two minutes or 30 minutes in a day, it's this David and Goliath battle of like my, the, the mind is, is Goliath, right? And the body is the David. And it's just like sitting and staying in the body as the mind wanders. And I realized the meditation is not, it's the fact that I can have a thought, oh, did I take the trash out? Shit. And come back to center and let it go. It's not that I was not supposed to have thoughts. Um, I'm a big fan of gratitude journaling. Um, just a couple times a week to get that stuff out. I really believe in getting outdoors and walking while one would think that's for your physical health. I think I've just there's been so many times where, I mean, it's it, for me much more about my emotional mental health yeah, mm-hmm. Than, mm-hmm. than even just the physical benefits of walking, which are phenomenal, by the way. That is especially, and I'll be honest, I don't do as much in the wintertime when it's you know three feet of snow out there, but... In the summer, that's been a huge coping mechanism or anytime, really just getting outside when I feel stressed, when I feel overwhelmed, when I want to react, when I when I feel agitated, is getting out there and walking. I, I've su- built a really good support network, both people that are sober and people that are not sober. Um, because I realized there's some of my best friends are not in recovery. Right. Or they can like they can use alcohol like normally. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like responsibly we <laughs> to dinner and they have a drink and a half. And I'm like, what about the other half? Like, it just doesn't make sense to people like us. I mean, you're not finishing it. Yeah. I, I What other coping measures? I'm a big fan of life coaching, therapy. It takes a village to raise me, I feel. It, it does. It takes a village to raise a brat. I remember when I was very new in recovery or even just like still drinking and thinking about it. I thought that it was like these big, like elaborate things that people did, like that their healthy coping mechanisms involved like this step-by-step process that I was going to have to learn and practice. And it's like, oh, you mean to tell me it's just the basics? Like, make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you drink enough water, (laughs) make sure that you're, you know, your romantic relationship is, is in order and that you have healthy friendships and that you're setting boundaries, you know, like your, your parents uh, probably gave you a good example of like what boundaries look like. And, and it really comes down to the basics is what, what I have found. A hundred percent. That's it's the small shit done daily that like builds up to this, this greatness. And even within business, I, I was, I thought it was these 
big, big things. And what I realized is like these small daily practices that I do consistently, even when I don't want to do them. Um, I do a lot of cold plunges now, like, you know, ice baths became a huge thing and I was doing it before they were cool. I just need to okay, make that abundantly you. clear. Okay. <laughs> you know, I didn't start the trend, but like I was, I invested in this cold plunge tub and, and people go, why do you do that? Insurance to do hard stuff. I do feel phenomenal when I get out of there, but for that three to four minutes, uh, things I don't feel is anxiety. I don't feel, I mean, I feel stressed because I'm in a physically stressful environment, but right. different kind of stress, depression. I don't feel like I can't, all you can focus on is your breath to be able to stay in that cold water. Mm-hmm. And for that brief moment, it gives me just enough reprieve that I'm like, okay, whether it's a relationship issue, I've gotten there, you know, about to get in a big fight with a significant other before I do it. I hang up the phone, I go, I get in the cold plunge tub, which sounds crazy, but it gives me that three to five minutes to not think about it. I get out and I just am able to, um, to plot forward. And you know what? I think it all goes together. When you talked about like the water and like, it's just the same thing with fitness. Like you got to be consistent with your food, not perfect, but consistent. Mm-hmm. Give me a B plus effort. You know, you don't have to be perfect. You got to work out three times a week. You got to, you know, try to get an X amount of steps. You got to, you got to try to drink X amount of water. Like the solution we sell at Key Nutrition is the most unsexy thing. It's like, <laughs> you just got to do these small things every yeah. single day, really consistently. And before you know it, and it might take far longer than you think it should take, you're going to have a body that you're just like, this is amazing. How did mm-hmm. this happen? But it might take you years with an S, like of just consistently doing this day after day after day. Yeah. And it's the same thing with my mental and emotional health. Like, you know, I, I personally am a big fan of prayer. I couldn't really tell you what I pray to because I, I, I'm not religious by any, you know, certain means. But it's like those small little things done daily that I'll drift away from. And it's not like the first day I notice it. It's day 15 or day 30 of drifting away from things where I'm like, man, I am not handling stress well. I'm flying off the handle a little more. I'm getting a little more agitated. I always say, you want to check your spiritual condition. How do you do in traffic? And that's always a good barometer for me. When you have a toddler too. So like, that's another one, like (laughs) doing a toddler. (laughs) I'm a single dad of a toddler, which is interesting because, you know, obviously I, you know, I only, I get them 35% of the time. Um, Right now it's going to go to 50, 50, but I talked to a buddy and he's like, yeah, dude, you spend way more time alone with your kid than I ever do. We have a same age kid because I have to, right? It's just me. It's just me and him. And that's just another leverage point for me to practice what I preach, to do the next right thing and do do the things that I don't want to do that when I do it, I come out the other end a better human being because I show up better as a dad. Yeah. And I have only lost my patience on him two distinct times in almost three years. I'm pretty damn proud of that. And that's that was not me before. Mm-hmm. Like I, if this would have happened six years ago, I would have been flying off the handle all the time. Yeah. I feel like we covered so much, but is there anything before we wrap it up? Is there anything that I didn't ask in terms of healthy coping mechanisms or recovery in general, or that, that you want to make sure that you say, you know, I'll say this over the last 10 years of my sobriety journey, those coping mechanisms have ebbed and flowed. The gym is actually one of my healthier coping mechanisms today. Now, I make this abundantly clear, the gym can be therapeutic, but I need you to understand, I'm going to hear people go, well, the gym is my therapy. That's not actual like deep emotional work. Right. It can be therapeutic, but the gym is part of that coping solution too. And the reason what shifted for me was I used to go to the gym because I thought I had to be big and I had to live to this certain image and I had to look a certain way. 
um, because I was, a, you know, my name was the sober bodybuilder. And so I'm, you know, I better look the part. And, mm-hmm. and when that shifted and I'm like, no, I want to work out because I want to feel good. And sure, we all want to look good. I detached from that version of me of having to look this way. And before I knew it, this thing that kind of like I had to go do because I had to look this part became fun again and became another one of my coping mechanisms. And and all I'm with this, just that it has ebbed and flowed how this has looked. You know, I've had times of life coaching. I've had times of business. I've had times of therapy. I've had, you know, times where I gratitude journal every day. And then when I didn't do it for a year and then I did no meditation, I do a lot of meditation now. And I think it's just being willing and open-minded to continue to try new things. If it worked for somebody else, it might work for you and it might not, but you never know until you try. Mm -hmm. I didn't think meditation would work for me. I was like, whatever, I'll try it. And I'm like, wow, meditation is really worked for me. Mm -hmm. But even if you out there trying it, you might not love meditation. You might never get into it. So maybe you try breathwork technique. Or another form of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different ways to do this. And I think that so often we just kind of get stuck even doing some of the same things that aren't serving us anymore. Yeah. Like I, like me going to a ton of meetings probably wasn't serving me as much as I thought it was because- You're just checking out the boxes. Yes. So remain open-minded and continue to take an inventory of like, you know, I checked the boxes for a lot of years, but I feel like I actually ended up the same exact human being. Right. And we're after evolution, not stagnant. Thank you so much for sharing Thank all you. this and being here. Yes. I know you're at the Sober Bodybuilder on Instagram. And then where do you want people to go if they want to learn more about you? I know that mynextlevelexperience.com which, by the way, big shout out to you. You were on the forefront of the beta round of creating that program. I don't know if you that's remember. Still, that's it? It's still that's in its it. Like, it is probably sixth iteration now? Ninth. Ninth? That's awesome. So oh cool. my gosh. We've really, it's that a, it's a so deep happy. dive in everything we just talked about. Um, yeah. It's really shifted at mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. Um, but you were kind I'm of so glad you the forefront of helping me. Uh, yeah. It's been- Get that a, off the ground. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for that. So that's my next self experience.com. It's a, it's a quarterly self-development program. Uh, I run and then my other company is key nutrition and you find that at key nutrition.com. And we do all things, fitness, nutrition, coaching with an emphasis on, you know, the, uh, emotional and mental and spiritual health side. So I love that you guys incorporate that. That's so important. You you can't have one without the other. And thank you for sharing your story and, and being of service and talking about important things that are sometimes hard to talk about, even though I know you've been talking about it for so long. It's like, yeah. <laughs> not as hard anymore. Everyone, thank you for listening. You know how much I am grateful for your time. I know your time is is very important. And thank you again for making time for my guests and myself. And remember, it is our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes andreaowen.com slash free. And you just sign up. You get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed.